Welcome back to the Tapes Archive Podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. Please listen to episode 000, an introduction for the full backstory about this podcast series. On this episode, we have Jethro Tull's founder and frontman, Ian Anderson. At the time of this interview in 1993, Ian and Toll were on tour supporting the band's 25th anniversary. In the interview, Ian talks about what Jethro Tull's place in the history of rock will be, his love for compilation records, including his own, and he looks into the future and gets completely wrong the legacy of Metallica. At the time, Ian was 46 years old and was enjoying playing theaters over arenas, and for me, no one rocked a codpiece quite like Ian did. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. If you'd like to support the show, please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. There, we post other content and information not available on the podcast. If you'd like to read the transcripts for any of our episodes, please head over to our website at thetapesarchive.com. We'll jump into the interview after a quick word from our sponsors. The Tapes Archive is proud to be sponsored by the true crime documentary, Dead Man's Line. You've got a hundred armed officers around here trying to get a shot at me. I dared them to shoot me. I didn't go down there to be a buffoon. I went down there for vengeance. And by God, I'll have vengeance. In 1977, Tony Karitsis kidnapped a mortgage broker and held him captive for three days. For the first time ever, the media was able to cover the event live. To some, Tony was a hero. To others, he was a crazed thug. Dead Man's Line, the true story of Tony Karitsis. This award-winning film is available exclusively on Amazon Prime. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. Hello, Mark Allen, please. This is Mark. Hi, Mark. This is Ian Anderson from Jeff Hotel. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm very well. I've just been speaking repeatedly to a young lady. I mean, quite a young lady from uh, apparently on a phone number that's... uh, Six six three nine three nine eight. I've been calling for the last ten minutes, <laughs> and finally had to explain what I was trying to do. And her mum looked up the your telephone number, and I'd got the well, whoever gave me the the the, the phone number had got it wrong. Oh, okay. But somewhere out there in a suburb, not too far from you, is a young lady who is very bemused by the fact that some strange English person from a rock band called Jethro Tull, of which she'd obviously never heard, <laughs> trying to reach her to talk to her about our forthcoming tour. Gee, it would have been kind of exciting if you had reached a fan, you know, and then somebody who was really thrilled and kept well, you on the phone. Actually, I, think, I think the girl had heard of us, but when she said to her mum, she said, what's that, a delivery service? Because <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was going to be... Like, she was going to get through to her mum, and I said, mum, mum said, what? Let me speak to him. But no, <laughs> uh, mum hadn't heard of us, but little girly had. Oh, I mean, well. maybe little girly wasn't so little, but she was, you know, we're talking teenage. But then a lot of our fans are these days, and who's complaining? Really? You're, you're finding, you're getting a young audience, huh? Um, well, I mean, I, yes, in the same way as a lot of young people go to museums and art galleries. <laughs> and things that were Don't say that. Way back. 
do it. I was just, I was thinking it was uh, 20 years ago this month that I saw Jethro Tull for the first time. Mm. So on the Passion Play Tour. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a long time. 25 years now uh, overall. As you look back on it, uh, you've had some incredible highs, a few things maybe that are be considered lows. Is there anything you'd change? Um, well, I'm sure there are lots and lots and lots of little things that I would change. I don't think I'd change any of the big things, but, the, you know, lots of little things, sure. I mean, uh, like trying to remember to play an F natural as opposed to uh, an F sharp in some particular song somewhere. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose it's not, it's not been a disastrous, um, a, a disastrous series of events. It's been uh, interesting. But... Um, you know, we are amongst those few people who are still around from the earlier days of rock music as it took off in the, in the big sort of era of the late 60s, early 70s into the, the arenas and the stadiums of the USA. I mean, we're one of those surviving bands who still has an audience of a few thousand people. And, uh, you know, we're not the biggest band in town, but, you know, we have a, a meaningful following. Considering the nature of our predominantly uncommercial music, I suppose we're lucky to have anybody coming to see us at all because you know, we don't do the uh, the straightforward stuff. You know, we, we kind of fool around a little bit. On reflection, I mean, we're, we're very lucky to have an audience given that, that we are that sort of a band that did the stuff that other bands didn't do rather than follow the mainstream of, of rock. You had mentioned having this audience coming out to see you, and it seems to me that groups from the 60s, 70s, uh, and, and so on, seem to have the biggest followings today that, uh, that you know, concerts, uh, concert tours by groups that have been long established are doing very well, whereas, you know, newer groups have a harder time attracting the concert audience. I'm wondering if uh, you think that's any kind of comment on the state of music now. I think it's more of a comment on the state of the economy, really, because, um, you know, people are concerned about value for money, and if you feel that you're going to get uh, value for money by going to see a band that is, uh, or an artist that is, that's been around for many, many years, that seems to deliver the goods and promise some kind of a, a payoff in perhaps not spectacular but acceptable terms, then, you know, value for money seems to be an important part of persuading people to part with their ticket price. I, I also have a sneaking suspicion that maybe the, the glory days of, of the big production kind of shows must be coming to an end. I think that uh, if you're at the forefront of that large-scale touring event, you know, the U2 tour or the Guns N' Roses or the Metallica, then you can do very well. But a lot of the time, it doesn't do too well, or it doesn't do too well two years in succession. I mean, I know that uh, bands like Guns N' Roses and Metallica have probably not enjoyed the same success second time around in, uh, in some of their uh, appearances in the last few months that they did a year or so ago. Um, it's somehow satisfying to be around in a, in a kind of echelon that depends upon, you know, two, three, four thousand willing punters coming to see something that is a musical performance rather than a, the uh, state of the art or the state of the month. In, in the sense of being current, uh, the popular thing to see, the popular thing to do. But 
I think about it now, and, and I've seen you about 10 times, maybe a little more over the years, and I, I can't remember a crowd of less than 10,000 people, and I've never seen you in a place other than an arena. Really? And, yeah. I'm, Gosh, well, because we, we've been playing theaters since we started. It's always been a very important part of Jess Hotel's concert-going activities to try and make sure that we, you know, we play in a, a variety of scales of events. And indeed, the, the 2,000-seater theaters are sort of something I very much have tried to keep a hold on over the years in, in the sense of keeping that as a, a viable thing. I mean, sure, we, you know, we, we play the arenas and the, the festivals and all the rest of it, but, you know, we also try and fit in theater tours as well. Where have you been seeing this play? Madison Square Garden. <laughs> and, well, uh, we don't, we don't, you know, I mean, in, uh, and Boston, we have Garden. a couple of shows in New York next month, right. or later this month, whenever it might be, kind of, I don't know, 10, 20,000 places that, that, that may or may not be full. I think they probably will be full, but we're also playing to places where we'll probably only play to, you know, three or 4,000 people, and in some of our concerts, you know, we play to, I mean, this last European tour, we played to maybe you know, 30,000, 40,000 people one night and maybe 2,000 people the next night in some village square in the middle of the Austrian Alps. Mm -hmm. that, that, for me, is really exciting. You know, you don't get sucked into this kind of uh, one level of performance where you're dealing only with big crowds and big sort of uh, big events, big big gestures. I think it's very important to, to try and, you know, keep this contact with smaller groups of people as well. I mean, I, I much prefer playing to, I mean, it's much easier as a performer to deal with people when it's, it's you know, kind of a couple of thousand folks, then, then you really feel you're kind of reaching to all of them. But it, it's very hard when it gets more than about 5,000 people. You know, some people are getting shortchanged, there's no doubt about it. I, I know that because I've been in the audience and uh, I, I, I would rather, I would rather go and see a an act play, you know, in a small venue, anytime, anywhere. Well, I get maybe that's the uh, drawback of growing up on the East Coast, where where you were enormously popular, and uh, uh, it was hard. I mean, uh, until maybe five, six years ago, I think I remember seeing that you were playing at the theater in St. Louis, and that was probably the first time that I ever knew of Jethro Tull playing a theater in the United States. So uh, well, I, I was actually looking through some dates the other day, and I was astonished to see we were playing theatres fairly consistently. Not 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 every day, but I mean here and there, all the way through our career in the USA. It was um, there were quite a few theatre dates, and uh, I know because I, having seen them written down, I remember them, and I can remember those more readily than I remember the uh, you know the kind of arena or stadium type dates which sort of blur a little bit with the theater dates tended to have something about them that causes you to remember the you know remember the actual time and place and who was on and what you did let me go back and, and talk about some of the material over the years you especially early on sung a lot about uh, god and religion when you look back on that material now how do you feel about it have you changed your mind um yes but only a little bit, and most of it I've changed back again to how I felt then. I think that one of the reassuring things about growing older is that a lot of those childhood philosophies and views that you form in the midst of puberty and the conflicting emotions of uh, hormonal disturbance are not flash-in-the-pan one-off things. I think they're actually very formative, very important emotions, some of which probably stay with you for life. And, 
mean, a, a lot of those things that I was thinking and singing about a few years later, I, I'm still fairly comfortable with in terms of opinion and thought now, looking back on them. Um, there may have been times where I might have changed my views or at least entertained alternatives during my life, but I think pretty much I, I go along with the Ian Anderson of... Uh, you know, 1970, 71, 72. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of not such a different guy. Right. I don't have as much hair, but I, I still have the same uh, waist dimensions and uh, maybe marginally more saggy of buttock. <laughs> but, uh, basically, I'm pretty much the same guy. No more cuts. I, I mean, that, that, that is very reassuring when you sort of, those things come back to you. You know, you think, well, Wait a minute, that, that's kind of what I used to think. It's surprising in a way that you don't change more than you do. But I'm sure it's not just me, I'm sure it's everybody, or at least a lot of people who uh, find that those really formative years are very crucial in, in the sense that they, they build, uh, um, they, they put those sort of strong building blocks of your opinion, of your thought, of your, you know, the way you weigh things up. They, they, they provide a foundation for your later life. You may change a little bit, but it's still built on that foundation of, uh, of the exciting and dangerous years of puberty. I think that if you talk to some of your contemporaries, that they would probably cringe about some of the things that they wrote when they were young, though. So it's it's kind of reassuring to know that that you uh, stand by what you wrote then. Well, I, I I certainly cringe about some of them, but but only some of them. I mean, I can you give me an example? Well, there are things that I I mean, if if you want to take a I mean, that period of time, say 1970, if you take the Aqualung album, there. are songs like Aqualung, which I think are thoroughly relevant and good songs in the sense they're about very real contemporary social realities. They were songs about then, they're songs about now, they're songs about 20 years from now. There'll always be people living in cardboard boxes and about whom we have ambivalent feelings and find it difficult to relate to. But um, there are other songs on that same album that I, I think are a little heavy-handed and a bit awkward. And... Uh, I guess I would say that probably 50, 60, 70 percent of the things I've written I'm not too embarrassed about, and uh, probably about 25 percent of them I'm, I'm quite proud of having written. But I mean, out of 250 songs, I mean, we're probably talking 50, 60 songs that I'm really very, very pleased with, you know, 50 or 60 songs. Well, I mean, we're talking about 10 symphonies there. Right. have only managed nine and a half, so I think I'm in with a chance. <laughs> Okay. By my own evaluation, not that I'm saying what I do is as important, but I mean just in terms of self-satisfaction, I think there's a, quite a body of material in the, in the stuff that I've done that I, I, I don't, I mean, I'm not, in, not only not embarrassed about it, I'm actually quite proud of. And um, then there's a you know, bunch of stuff that I <laughs> wish I'd never seen before, but, you know, you have, to, uh, you have to accept that you did it. How does my God stand up? Oh, that's okay. That's okay. Yeah, I mean, that's not a difficult one to to deal with. No, that's okay. And and what about Thick as a Brick and a Passion Play? Well, Thick as a Brick is a sort of an amusing thing because it's, it was a it was a response to the critics who saw Aqualung as being some kind of concept album. So we, tongue in cheek and with good humour, delivered duly a concept album which was was deliberately overblown with a kind of a crazy. Um, 
way over the top, sort of almost Monty Python-esque kind of uh, parody of what a concept album was supposed to be. But it was done with a sense of humor and a warmth that uh, I don't think alienated the critics or the public. It, it, it kind of hit the spot. Uh, the difficulty was in following that up. We then went to do an album um, which founded in a in a in technical disarray because we were working in a studio in France where things just went horribly wrong and we kind of struggled for some months to get something completed which didn't really work out. Although, strangely, it will in fact be released in December this year as a part of a two-CD set. The, the missing 1972 Jethro Tull album will in fact, nearly all of it, be heard probably by you and a few others um, and it, it's kind of good fun again it has a sort of warmth and humor about it it's not the best music in the world but it's it's sort of amusing as a piece of early 70s stuff it's a historical document passion play was was the was the the follow-on to that when we went back to england and had to kind of start again and largely new material and a new approach it, it we were all, you know, we kind of, I mean, imagine if you spent three months of your life working on an album, it had all gone horribly wrong. You had to then pick up the pieces and kind of get a, get a record delivered. Then it was, um, I don't know, some of the humor went out of it. And that, that for me is the only problem with Passion Plays. It is, it is rather a, a humorless, it did just a little bit too serious and deadpan, you know, and it has that, it, it therefore it sounds pompous and totally, um, you know, grandiose, whereas it wasn't supposed to be that way. It was supposed to have been warmer and a bit more kind of uh, uh, tongue-in-cheek. But I'm afraid the, the levity got lost in the foundering uh, attempts from the Chateau de Reville in Paris in 1972. So that's my excuse. Well, <laughs> What's King Crimson? The Emerson Lake and Park? <laughs> or Yeses or Deep Purples? Or, I mean, what... <laughs> What have they got to say for themselves? <laughs> I don't know. The, 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 don't don't trash Passion Play too completely because it's really it's one of my favorite no, all-time albums. I'm not trashing yeah. it. It's just it's just it's, it just is a little bit short on the kind of the warmth, the kind of uh, it just it just missed that thing. You know, it just didn't quite convey something which was supposed to be a little bit of fun. It was it was too deadpan. You know, it it just um, there was a kind of tiredness about the uh, the recording process at that moment. It just somehow didn't convey the thing that was supposed to be there, which was a little bit of tongue-in-cheek and warmth and fun, which was certainly there with Thick as a Brick and, and indeed was there with the album that didn't get completed. But I mean, Passion Plays, not a, not a, I don't look back on it and think, oh, God, what a terrible record. I just think it was a record that uh, was lacking an ingredient that could so easily have been there if we hadn't been a little bit jaded through the the dislocation geographically of taking to another country to make a record and being tax exiles and and um, you know having the problems of family and girlfriends and wives being in a strange place, it was just it weighed heavily upon us in a you know in a in a soulful sense. We we got a little bit uh, too pedantic about it all. But hell, what it was only you know that was 1973. <laughs> Yeah, a lot I, I, worse things happened. I can't remember what, but I'm sure they did. Well, uh, if it makes you feel any better, I, I I think that album stands up remarkably well. I was listening to it today, and I listen to it pretty frequently because it's one of my favorite records. And I don't know. I think there's enough spots of humor in there, and uh, certainly enough uh, that people can read into it or, or not read into it as they see fit. And, uh, Good. I think well, it's, I mean, it's 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 
It's okay. Yeah. It's, okay. it's a kind of seven and a half out of ten one. It's not a. You know, there have been worse, but there've been many better. Um, let's okay. Uh, your your more recent albums, uh, Catfish Rising, Rock Island. How are those going to sound in twenty years? Do you think? Uh, seven and a half out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> um, they kind of you know they they have their moments too. I mean I think that. Um, I mean, the, the one before that... Crest of a Nave. Crest of a Nave. Crest of a Nave was a good kind of balance. Crest of a Nave is a sort of 1980s version of uh, stand-up. Mm-hmm. It has a good eclectic mix. I mean, that, that has a good balance of material on it. You know, it's a um, strange thing. You know, you only see this kind of after the fact, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't complete them the way you do. But, you know, Crest of a Nave had a good balance to it. Yes. And, um, and some good songs. It's, for me, it's kind of like stand-up. Um, a middle period Jeff Tell album like Songs from the Wood, again, I'd put in the same vein of having a, the sort of right balance of kind of serious stuff, humorous stuff, you know, complex, simple. I mean, it's, it's um, you know, they're, they're kind of balanced records that, that, that seem like the, uh, you know, the product of a, a sane and comfortable individual with uh, at least two or three major credit cards to his name. <laughs> I mean, I quite, I, I, I would always recommend those, but if I had to, if I had to stop and recommend any particular album to anybody, the, the tedious but truthful response would be that I would go for one of the best of albums, well, probably particularly the one that's out at the moment, the two CD set of digital remasters, which are truly, genuinely original um, mixes of the, um, but, but they do in, I think in every case sound better than they than they would do on their um, original albums as they sound today. But the, the digitally remastered best of of whatever it is, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I have that. Thirty yeah. odd songs or whatever they yeah. are. Um, I mean that that's 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 the kind of thing that I would say. Well, yeah, that's if you were a first time Jethro Tull buyer, then probably a good thing to go for. Similarly, if you were someone who'd bought a lot of Jethro Tull albums on vinyl in the past and wanted to buy a, you know, wanted to replicate them all in CD, then I would say that something like that is a good cross-section of the things that, you know, I mean, it's, it, it is just that, a cross-section. It's not including everything, but it's a, a bit of this, a bit of that. It gives you an overall picture. So, particularly for the younger fans, you know, people maybe coming along and seeing Jethro Tull for the first time or buying their first, second, or third Jethro Tell album, then those best of things are a pretty good deal if you're looking for a, an answer to the whole picture. I mean, I, I speak as one who whose recent purchases include sort of Strangler's um, best ofs and box sets and, and things from the, the Ramones. And, you know, I mean, because I, I, I go for that. You know, if I'm, I'm not going to go and buy all their bloody records because the chances are that eight out of ten songs are a pile of shit. <laughs> You know, I'm going to go for the box set on the grounds that they are the proven track record things over a career of some, you know, well, whatever it might be, 10 years or 20 years or five years, depending on your status. But, you know, the the, the compilation is not a dirty word. I think it's a pretty good way of getting an overall picture fairly quickly. And then if you if you like what you hear, you might then start investigating it and going back into the minute eye of detail surrounding some particular album. But... You know, I, I kind of like those compilations and box sets. I buy them all the time. I mean, I'm sitting staring at a Muddy Waters compilation, actually, on my my study desk as I sit. Uh-huh. You know, I'm a compilation kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with those. Uh-huh.
Uh-huh. And they're usually cheap, but... Yeah, well, in the overall scheme of things, it's certainly cheaper than buying uh, every Strangler's record or something like that. Mm. Uh, the, um, it, it seemed, it, I guess if you're going to divide Jethro Tull records into periods, as you seem to have done, it seemed to me that after Songs from the Wood, you had... And I'm probably wrong about this, but it seemed like you had a harder time coming up with, with ideas of things that you wanted to write about that, that were really personal and, and, and affected you. Uh, and I'm wondering if, if I'm re- just reading something into it or if there's any truth to that. No, I, I don't have any, any problem writing things that, that reflect my feelings and emotions and interests at all. But, but I you know, obviously have a, more of a problem when I have to accommodate the the kind of musical aspirations and interests of other members of the group. So, you know, the, the problem for Jethro Tull has always been that there have been, first of all, a lot of different members in the band, each of whom have come with their own idiosyncratic uh, expressions regarding sort of the way they play music, their preferences for different kinds of music, their personalities as they affect the music. It's, and, you know, first of all, you write for yourself, but second and fairly closely as a second you tend to think about the people you're working with and you, you hope to impress them and make them feel good about what you're offering up to them to play so I mean if there are difficulties it tends to be well you were in the middle of a sentence and then yeah. you weren't there anymore well that's right I got to the end of the sentence and you weren't there anymore <laughs> anyway um, so can you continue that thought you were saying you were writing to, uh, to impress and other members of the band. Sure, so, I mean that, that's a big part of it, you know, that you kind of, you're aware of other people's preferences and ex- wishes to express a certain thing and, and you find yourself either consciously or subconsciously working with that in mind and it's um, it's the way that it is, you know, I think that uh, I don't think anyone is a true solo performer. I think you're, you know, you're always um, however out on a limb you might seem to be, you're always kind of working with somebody, even if it's just the recording engineer or the tape operator, there's a there's more than uh, more than one viewpoint at work. Did becoming successful in terms of audiences and, and making money and all that change your perspective about what you wrote and, and sang about? Uh, you know, does it become difficult to write about the church or religion or whatever uh, when you've been so fortunate to be as successful as you've been? Um, I don't think it's difficult to write about the church or religion, but certainly there are some subject areas that do become more problematic as you're um, you're dealing with simple ideals and sort of universal kind of street sort of values, then it is difficult if you know you've got a few million in the bank. You know, it must be difficult if you're in U2, for example, to be a, a preaching kind of a band when, you know, the most of the people you're preaching to are you know, compared to yourself, uh, extremely poor. It must be difficult if you're um, talking about um, certain values and you're Michael Jackson and you, you know, you own half the known universe. Of, of course it's difficult, but uh, at the end of it all, you know, we have our private areas of conflict with um, our own wherewithal versus the, that sort of universal guilt that we must all feel that there are people who are much less fortunate than us. And, uh, and maybe we address it, maybe we don't. I mean, I... I do, but the way in which I do is probably quite different to the way in which Michael Jackson does. I mean, we're talking di- different also in quantitative terms as well. So I think, yes, there is obviously a, a dilemma at work there as soon as you become 
monetarily successful as a musician, you immediately tread on very, very thin ice when it comes to some of the subject material and some of the sentiments that you might have expressed when you were a, a poor, penniless, struggling musician. That's uh, one of the things you have to cope with. And at that point, it's best to get rid of the limos and the dark glasses. It's best to shed the trappings of showbiz and, uh, you know, kind of just be one of the guys as much as you can. I mean, it's easier, it's easier to deal with Phil Collins making a lot of money than it is to deal with Michael Jackson or Madonna making a lot of money because Phil Collins doesn't seem too showbiz, but he's going to upset you. Whereas Madonna is sort of archetypal Hollywood showbiz, power crazy, sort of over the top. I mean, I don't think anybody really likes Madonna. That's the sad thing, you know. And yet there's a lot of talent and, you know, character there. It's just that you can't like this woman, you know. It's just so sad, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Most I'll... people like dear old Phil. Yeah, I'd throw Phil in there with them. Give the money to somebody else. Let's, let's not give it to Phil either. Uh, let me see what else I wanted to ask you about. Um, it said in, um, in one of the bio, in some of the bio material that had been sent, that uh, there was a reunion not long ago of uh, former and current uh, tall members. Is this correct? That's right. What was that like? It when was, was it? Uh, well, it was pretty weird at the beginning because it wasn't. It wasn't our idea, I mean, any current or ex-Jethro Tull member's idea was the idea of the director of a, a video that EMI wanted to make of, sort of 25 years of Jethro Tull. He wanted to get everybody together and we've all kind of cringed a bit. And uh, so uh, in the end, I thought, well, you know, we're either going to end up with a half-hearted response and it will be really embarrassing or we better try and get really everybody there, in which case I have to get on the phone and call people. So I did. And there was a, a lot of reticence among some members, but as soon as they felt that there was a, a sort of genuine uh, kind of will to see each other again, you know, um, it, it kind of snowballed into, I mean, really every single person would have been there except that two or three of them were on tour. One, his new wife was having a baby that day, you know, 5,000 miles away. And, uh, you know, one was dead. And... Um, I mean, apart from that, everybody turned up. So it was, it was I think, it was 16 out of 22 people. Mm-hmm. And um, it, was, uh, it was surprising because all these people, some of them had never met each other before, which is a really interesting thing. I mean, they were kind of, oh, you're the guy who was there in 74. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, um, it was quite extraordinary. But the, um, there were a few people you expected to have tense moments uh, exhibited, but, but they weren't, but, you know, some of the... Some of the people you thought were kind of going to be really, really awkward in each other's company were, were actually okay. And then strangely, there was a little tension between people that you didn't expect there to be tension between. But for the most part, people really got on, and it was a very friendly and civilized affair. And, and, and remarkable for one thing, which was that at no point during the day did I hear anybody talking about old times. You know, what people talked about was was today or tomorrow in the sense of, uh, well, how old are your children now? And where are they going to school? And where are you, where are you going to holiday next year? And uh, people were kind of, no one was interested in, in in the past or reminiscing. You know, that was kind of like definitely not what anybody was there for. It was uh, it was quite extraordinary. that the, the, they, couldn't, they couldn't get anyone to talk about old times. Um, 
not readily anyway. Well, one of the, the things that I find kind of amazing is uh, 22 is a few more than I thought there were, but uh, the, once people left Jethro Tull, they really never did anything. I mean, they certainly never did anything of note. Uh, I mean, you look back, starting from the days of Mick Abraham's leaving, there, there is no, I mean, you know, I never heard a word about Barry Barlow after he left. I never heard a word of, of John Evan after he left. And, and it's kind of curious that... Uh, well, they, but most of them sort of opted out of music. I mean, John Evans uh, left Jeff Hotel and went into um, the building industry. He runs a, a quite successful uh, building firm who does most of the renovations uh, on buildings around Heathrow Airport. Uh, Jeffrey Hammond left Jethro Tull to become a painter, which is what he was before he joined Jethro Tull. And uh, he's done nothing but stay at home and paint pictures since then. Um, Barry Barlow went off into the sort of risky world of record production and management and... Uh, you know, has had mixed fortune since, I think, true to say. Um, Clyde Bunker went off to set up an engineering factory and, and dog kennels. <laughs> <laughs> and McAbrahams became a lifeguard, but he couldn't swim. <laughs> so, hang on a sec. Sure. Okay. Hi, Gail, where are you? At the hotel. Hi, sorry, okay. my daughter on route somewhere in far part of the country. Um, yeah, that's it. Okay. All right. Well, I'm hoping uh, I can keep you just a few more minutes. I wanted to ask you a few other things. Um, yeah, it ha have to be a few because I'm actually, I should have had a six o'clocker that I've got to ring through right now, so we're not get too far behind. All right. Uh, just, uh, okay, then just a couple other things. Um, you've, you've touched on this a little bit already, but um, what's Jethro Tull's place in the history of rock going to be? Uh, well, probably not that in, that important uh, a place, but you know, I, I imagine Jeff Hotel is always going to be seen as one of those quaint, sort of idiosyncratic bands of the sort of seventies that um, sort of kind of did the stuff that was, um, you know, kind of not the norm and had its brief brief connection with commercial success, but overall was a sort of band that. Um, kind of did, uh, did things that weren't quite mainstream. I suppose at the end of it all, I think I'd rather be in Jethro Tull than be in Guns N' Roses because, you know, Guns N' Roses, if they are remembered in a hundred years from now in, in the sort of music books um, or the history books, they're going to be remembered as a, a band who kind of were a, you know, a second, second, secondary cycle of a kind of Rolling Stones phenomenon, just as Metallica will be remembered as a kind of secondary cycle of the Black Sabbath kind of phenomenon. Um, I mean, Jeff Tull, along with the, some of the, the Emerson, Lake and Palmers and Yes and all these kind of progressive rock bands of the early 70s is sort of a, seen as being a slightly kitsch, slightly, um, you know, bombastic, overblown, whatever. But at least some people remember our names and, and some of us are remembered as as musicians, not just as uh, images. I mean, you're going to remember Keith Emerson was actually a very good keyboard player, and you're going to remember that guys in Pink Floyd or Yes or whoever, you know, actually had some real command of their their instruments, whereas uh, a lot of the bands have really just been kind of imagey and sort of pretty faces or around at the right time with the occasional hit record. And 
I'm, I'm, I'm not unhappy with the status of Jethro Tull, but I don't think, you know, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't place it as being kind of uh, a landmark in the history of rock music. We're just kind of one of those bands that did some of the stuff that was uh, a little bit on the edge of that, uh, that more conventional and satisfying mainstream of rock music, which I, as a listener, enjoy immensely when, it, when it's good. But, you know, it's very, very hard to work in that genre and come out with anything original. Mm -hmm. um, and these days, even harder than ever. But you'll be happy with that designation then? Well, I'd be happy with the idea that we were one of those almost, I mean, yeah, an almost an important band. <laughs> uh, and finally, I was hoping that uh, you would uh, look into your crystal ball and uh, tell me what you think music is going to be like in the year 2000. Ooh, well, I wish I could say that it was going to be any, I mean, we're only talking, after all, you know, seven years away. It really is not going to be very different. I mean, rock music as a genre has really changed very, very little over the last 20, 30 years. I mean, we're still talking the same essential rhythms, the same tempos, the same fairly simple harmonic relationships. It's not, nothing has really substantially changed. We've had technological changes, but we haven't had really musical changes. You know, rock is a, is a pretty finite form. It, it can deal in a currency which is, you know, fairly universal and fairly simple. Um, I don't think we're going to see any great changes. We will see, I mean, for sure, for the next 10 years, all we're going to see is more recycling of fairly established formats that have been produced in the last 30 years. I mean, we've seen revivals of, uh, you know, kind of 60s stuff, and we've seen, you know, kind of, I mean, like, like we said, the Guns N' Roses, you know, are not a million miles away from early stones, and... Metallica from Black Sabbath and you know you look at some of the, the kind of grungy sort of post-hippie type bands from Seattle or what have you I mean they, they owe a lot to I mean, a peculiar mixture of kind of 60s ideology and MC5 anarchism um, I mean but, but you know we're kind of recycling all these sort of notions and patching them together in slightly slightly varied ways slightly I mean eclecticism these days is not about the true eclecticism of the perhaps the late 60s or the early 70s, when people looked at world music, as it has now become known. Eclecticism now is just kind of from a very narrow band of proven commercial formulae, which uh, conspire every so often to produce a new hit band that sounds different on first inspection, but in reality is probably just uh, um, you know, a careful amalgam of a few proven formulaic uh, approaches to rock music. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, we're recycling cornflake packets and bottles and <laughs> nuclear fuel. We might as well recycle rock music as well. Let's be friendly to the environment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if not the ears, yeah. Uh, it just seemed to me that in asking that question, and I'll let you go after this, uh, the, um, uh, that in, it, I'm, I'm 34 years old, and everybody who's, who's my age or maybe a little older who grew up on, on rock music probably knows the song Bungle in the Jungle. But now, if Bungle in the Jungle came along, it would be a hit on a narrow radio station where you know lots of kids would never hear it. It would be a, a appeal to a certain audience. It, it seemed to me that the audience of rock is fractured to the point where you can you can be in a very uh, narrow uh, scope of things and and not uh, and, and a lot of people will never know what you do. Mm. 
which is rather sad when you think of all the uh, the bands that there must be out there at any point in time who have some genuine talent and some genuine sort of creative and perhaps even new approach to music who are just not going to get I mean just are not going to be heard <laughs> and that that is a worrying thing you know that we're talking about recycling a lot of proven ideas because they are sufficiently familiar to those people who operate the media, you know, the record companies, the press, the the, um, the radio stations, the MTV, you know, we're, we're dealing with things that sound familiar and proven, they have a track record, they've got to sound familiar to the guys who pull the, the purse strings and the, uh, you know, um, a allocate time and energy towards specific projects. But, you know, there must be a whole bunch of things out there that just never get I mean, none of us ever get to hear. And that's, that is very sad and very frightening, but it's the, it's the age in which we live. And music is, uh, I think, as always, just reflects a lot of other things about the society we live in at the moment. There is a, there is a need just now to be uh, not too adventurous, to kind of be slightly conservative, slightly right-wing, and stay with the things that we know work. You know, there's a great uncertainty about the planet at the moment, and uh, combined with the dangerous forces of nationalism, flag-waving extremism, um, you know, rock music is also, or popular music is also kind of entrenched in staying within the things that are mainstream, things that sound familiar, reassuring, and don't pose too many uh, uh, big question marks. But, you know, the, the most radical music around, uh, for me, is not, uh, you know, rude rap or, you know, Funkadelia or acid or, you know, techno rave or any of these sort of absurd definitions that get thrown around. I mean, they, to me, are just the just the, the dying embers of what began in Tamla Motown, the sort of final degradation, really, for me, of what black music was and should still be about. But um, I don't hear anything too radical or exciting. And if there is anything radical, exciting, and uh, innovative, then it ain't getting released on record, or at least not on a record label that I know about. And that, that's the scary thought, that uh, you know we're all having to play a little bit safe these days. But you know we're in the post-Thatcher years, the post-Reagan years, and uh, just everybody's a little bit nervous right now. Very true. With probably very good reason. <laughs> Maybe so. At any rate, I appreciate all your time. I'm looking forward to seeing you, and uh, I hope everything uh, works out the way you like. Well, uh, even half of it does. I wouldn't have had a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Take care. Thank you, bye Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.